Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. I'm Brian Bolt, kinesiology professor and men's golf coach at Calvin College. And I'm Chad Carlson, kinesiology professor and director of general education at Hope College. And we're coming to you again live from the audio studio of Our Daily Bread, the mission whose work is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to you and to me in new and meaningful ways each day, mostly through their publication, Our Daily Bread, that's been around for a century. Uh, Chad, how are you today? Doing well. Doing well. Good morning. Excellent. Well, it's uh, the birds are singing and the air is warm. Wait. That... Not exactly. <laughs> you know, when the calendar flips over to March, I get pretty excited because uh, I anticipate that we're going to see more sunshine and the snow will melt away. You know, you start putting away those winter clothes. Yeah, not not so much yet. Supposedly in Michigan, March comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. At least that's the old adage. And... I remember that it seems like every year March comes in like a lion, but I feel like it leaves like a lion too. Yeah, I think it's just wishful thinking. Yeah, year is. after year, you get excited about, you know, sort of an early spring that, you know, the groundhog sees a shadow and you're, you're pretty happy. And yeah, well, every year we're disappointed and we wait for April. But we do have one thing in March, March Madness. Yes. Are you getting excited about March Madness? This is my favorite month of the year. March is uh, its such a great month in terms of college basketball. I mean, it doesn't get more exciting than that in my book. On uh, Saturday, I was invited to a high school musical. And I, you know, this was a month ago. I said, sure, I'll go because I knew one of the people that was the working as the director. And I also knew one of the leads in the play. So I had scheduled a Saturday night high school musical. Uh, it also turned out to be the day, the day that Duke played North Carolina and uh, Michigan played Michigan State. Wow! So, yes, bad yeah, timing. That, it was a bit. Yeah, it was bad timing. Uh, I turned my phone off. I I didn't let anybody talk to me, and uh, <laughs> I enjoyed that musical. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, you know? great show! Yep. Yeah. Yep. So shout out to TK High School for getting that done. That was awesome. And then. Uh, came home and and just dvr'd right through a couple of games it was fantastic uh i'm a i'm gonna root for north carolina of course as a graduate i was always partial of michigan state over michigan so pretty good night for me i think we're uh, both of those teams are getting stronger as they head into march madness yeah this is such a nice sort of precursor it's like a, an appetizer right? an appetizer for for what's to come with march madness but having those two games featuring top 10 teams both in-state rivals. You know, Michigan and North Carolina right now are the only two states that have two teams in the college basketball top 10 on the men's side. Oh, that's a great and stat. Both yeah. playing against each other. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit early, actually, for us to be talking about March Madness, so we're just going to do a little precursor to that. And, okay. and we actually have, a, we have a, an expert on March Madness here in the studio. I know Bill's here, but but really, Chad, you are the expert on March Madness in in oh many ways because you've written about it, you've talked about it, and you've played. And so, what I've done today is I've I've pulled together a few what I'll call questions for Chad, <laughs> and and uh, just verify for the audience that you you have not had any of these previewed for you. You are going to have to think on the fly here <laughs> as you give us uh, answers to these questions. I put them in different categories. Okay. Okay, so we're going to ask you some lighthearted ones, okay. so a little bit more like our speed round. And we're going to ask you some some things more about your work. Okay. And that'll help us get to know you, but also get us ready to uh, go into this March Madness season. So 
Are you ready? I, I am. My, my heart rate is up right now. That's That was the plan. That was the idea. <laughs> Hopefully you're a, you're a game player, right? All right. All right. So just a, a couple of uh, quick questions to get to know you a little bit. You're a basketball player. You've played basketball in your life. So which NBA player do you compare yourself to? Oh, unquestionably Michael Jordan. Oh, okay. So <laughs> you start right at the top. Well, he was always my guy, at least growing up. I, I knew that... As a six, seven, eight-year-old, man, I was just like him. I wanted to be like Mike, just like everybody else. And I know I had moments in my in my basement on a five-foot rim when I was really, I was like like Jordan. Okay, but, so let, let's little I'll, air out of that balloon just for a second here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change that question around a little bit. Okay, that's great that you aspire to be like Mike, and it, uh, it just gives some... Uh, strength to that advertising campaign. I think every kid, especially in our era, I mean, we grew up and, and saw Michael Jordan play and we just thought we could maybe do that, right? He was, mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. Uh, changing the way basketball sure. looked yeah. to us. But how would, how would your, t- you had teammates, right? Yeah. You had college teammates yeah. and then yeah. you had uh, some teammates after college. Sure. Um, that... How would they describe your game? Get a little more basketball yeah. to me. You know, I always was, was um, compared to Steve Kerr and I think some of it was that he was a shooter, I was a shooter, but I think there were maybe a, a, a few sort of um, uh, racial and, and visible undertones that, that I had blonde hair like him, and there just weren't a lot of whole, whole lot of guys in the NBA that had blonde hair. Yeah, I would say probably more like Bruce Bowen. I was a 3 and D guy, shot a lot of threes, played a lot of D, and not a whole lot else. So Not a lot of driving to the basket. Not a ton of that. No, yeah. I, there, was, there was certainly some, but yeah, I was much more comfortable around the perimeter offensively. And you like to lock certain guys down. Well, I like to lock any, everybody down, but I, I I wasn't always capable of doing that. I did, I did the draw, best I could. Did you draw the other team's star? Yes, every time. Okay. Well, there you go. And it you, was frustrating. It's a, it's were, an act of futility usually. But. It's difficult, right? You kind of have to lock in. You, have, you still have to play team defense, yeah, but your responsibility yeah, is, yeah. is less to pull off your player, right? right. And you've just got to shut this person down and, and try to you know figure out what gum they're chewing by the end of the game, right? You know, that was usually a pretty good sign if I knew some of those things, if I knew the um, uh, you know the brand of underwear or whatever else you know you can say about, about that person to know that I was close to them. If I could, if I could keep another team's star to their average, Okay. That was usually a, a pretty good night because then we could focus on you know the rest of the team shutting down the other players, the, the ones that are a little bit more volatile. And if you can just keep the stud to write about where they are and not let them have a career night, that was usually a pretty good, pretty, right. good, pretty good night for me. Yeah. How about a big moment? You ever hit a you ever hit a game winner? You ever hit a buzzer beater? You know, I can't remember. I was I was probably much, I mean I really was much more comfortable as a passer. I do remember having uh, passes to to teammates that that hit game winning shots. And uh, and felt really good about that. Uh, one one particularly in the NCAA tournament at at Hope or Division three school, but first round, made a pass to a teammate that had a buzzer beater. We win by one. Okay. Uh, we move on. That was that was pretty satisfying. You run over the table, make sure they get the assist. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. That, that's important. Right. Right. Make right. sure they know the stats are right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So I, I, okay, I I don't know the answer to this question, and I'm looking. You know, you're you're not a huge guy, right? You're you're sure. okay dunks did could, could you never you know? in a game uh okay. in in open gyms yeah I, I, if i was on a fast break i could i could put one down okay but uh i was not a huge jumper and that yeah all right yeah well you uh let me transition a little bit here you uh, then took this interest in basketball into your professional career truthfully and you um decided that scholars have an opportunity to sort of t- steer their interests uh in many different directions 
you you published a book called uh, Making March Madness, the early years of the NCAA, NIT, and college basketball championship, championship tournaments, and, and the years are 1922 to 1951. How does one get to the place that they narrow in <laughs> to that space? You narrow into a 29-year period. Yeah, historically speaking, that's in the modern era, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a real focused period of time. Um, it, it seemed like those, so the publisher encouraged particular dates that they said histories, we like to have that beyond the colon of a title. Mm-hmm. And so that wasn't really my focus necessarily, but that seemed to be the swath of time that had the most to do with the, the birth of college basketball tournaments. So can you give us just a, a thumbnail sketch of those uh, tournaments of the NCAA, the NIT, uh, college basketball championships? Absolutely. That's what makes March so special, I think, in my mind. So the NCAA tournament is, is the premier event. When we talk about March Madness, that's the one we're talking about, right? The NCAA tournament, the Division One tournament. There's the men's, which is a big deal, the women's, which is a big deal. Historically speaking, the NCAA tournament was not always the top dog, and that's what's unique it about this, this whole story. It was the NIT. the NIT originally, but that wasn't the first tournament either. The first tournament on the scene was what's now the NAIA tournament, which is the other sort of uh, college sports organization. That event started in 1937. It wasn't called NAIA at the time. Um, 1938 was the first NIT, and then 1939 is when the NCAA comes on the scene. So it is really the the third in three years that comes onto the scene and is very much sort of this um, this afterthought at first. And um, the NCAA was jealous of what the NIT had, not so much the NAIA tournament at that time, but they wanted everything the NIT had, including the profits and and the, the atmosphere in New York City's Madison Square Garden where the NIT was, and they didn't have it. So the first year, they lose money. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty well known. They lost $2,500 that first event and had conversations about whether or not they should continue it at all. You know, we're talking about this thing that's now sort of a billion-dollar-a-year enterprise that may, that almost didn't have a second year back in the late wow. 1930s. And the unique thing about all this is that this is occurring at the end of the Depression, and so there's all kinds of thoughts and feelings about financial instability being among the worst things that could happen. And we're also in the midst of... Uh, this precarious, tenuous, international escalating tensions. And so it's not an ideal time to begin these new sporting endeavors, and yet that's exactly what occurs at the end of the 1930s. So it was a big risk. At that moment, uh, financially, it probably seemed like a time to be cautious, perhaps, about uh, doing big things because of the Depression and uh, also all the international turmoil. But somebody pushed it through. Was there one or two particular people that decided, hey, we've got to make this happen? So the one that got it on the scene was the Ohio State coach uh, at the time. And he's a guy that that really, uh, Harold Olson is his name, a guy that oversaw the tournament really its first uh, seven or eight years. And so he was a big deal. But from the 1939 event that lost money to the coaches convention in the immediate aftermath of that, where all these coaches who are part of the NCAA are saying, well, should we even continue this or not? We were $2,500 in debt. And at that point in time, debt was as much of a scarlet letter as anything. Nobody wanted any debt, right? The end of the depression. And, uh, and then we have Kansas's coach, Fog Allen, a very well-known coach, uh, really the father of basketball coaching, a James Naismith disciple, who steps in and says, you give me this tournament in Kansas City in 1940, and I will not only pay back the debt, but I will make you money. 
And he held good on his word. And, and the 1940 tournament ended up making over $9,000. Hmm. So a big turnaround. He was aided by, um, I say in the book, Lady Luck. But it you could look at it as divine intervention or the first time that... Um, you know, God looked down uh, favorably on the, on March Madness, whatever else you want to say. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the reason why the 1940 event made money was because they hosted, so it's an eight-team event. We got to re- realize that Very too. Very small, much Very smaller small. than today. Yep, the NCAA was, for administrative purposes, was, was set up into eight geographic regions. So each region sent a representative, their best team, to the tournament. Four east of the Mississippi, four west of the Mississippi. The, the four teams east of the Mississippi played their regional in Indianapolis mm-hmm. in 1940, and the four teams west of the Mississippi played their regional in Kansas City. And then the two winners of those regionals would face off in the championship, the East-West Championship in Kansas City. The team that won the Eastern Regional in Indianapolis was Indiana University. Oh, basically, a, Basically a home team. Sure. That helped the gate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it did. And the team that won the Western Regional in Kansas City was Kansas University. Perfect. Also a home team. So that... That skyrocketed the profits in terms of you know ticket sales, which was the main driver of revenue at the time, and then the East-West Finals in Kansas City, and and also played in front of you know sort of a home audience for for Kansas University. They end up losing to Indiana, in Indiana, but it's a one-off game, and so ticket sales were high. Yeah, yeah. and location, location, location. That it's still true, mattered. still true in sports today. Sure is. When home teams win uh, and they have an opportunity to play big games near their fans, it mm-hmm. just changes the environment. It's a, it's a fun experience. Absolutely. A lot more people are able, able to come. Um, at Calvin College next week, we're going to be hosting a high school tournament uh, game that was scheduled for somewhere you know southern, mm-hmm. uh, a southern part of the state. Uh, but they decided that the venue was too small and too far away from these two high school teams, so they they moved the venue to Calvin College because we have a larger arena, and uh, I think they're going to sell it out. I, Unbelievable! They're going to sell absolutely. five thousand tickets for yeah, this high school game. Yeah, it'd be so, a great game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just because you know, uh, grandparents and friends now can go, and it's not it's not that long a drive, so mm-hmm. it works out perfectly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Uh, great stuff. I do have some other questions about some things that you've written, but let, let's let's switch it around a little sure. bit. And I'm gonna I'm gonna change the category of questions here, and we're just gonna call this uh, no knock on you, older and wiser, older <laughs> and wiser. Yeah. So first of all, tell me what sport or game that you that you uh, did not play, or sorry, you did play as a kid, but you no longer play. You're, you you've uh, sort of removed it from your areas of interest or just the things that you do? Yeah, I played a lot of tennis growing up. Mm, really? And it was a, it was a, I would say, not a cultural thing, but it was a, a city thing. And in, in my town growing up, we had a ton of tennis courts all over, a great, really strong municipal program. So many kids were part of it. Right. I played a lot of tennis growing up, and I don't play at all now. Did you have uh, brothers, um, sisters, parents that played tennis? Yes, all of all of those. Okay, so mm-hmm. the whole family played. whole family played. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, how has now being a parent and going, being sort of a participant in youth sports, you, you have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. I'm near the end. <laughs> you have a long way to go. Uh, how has being a parent changed your approach to sport? Oh, I, uh, I fear the youth sport machine. I really do. Just as I, I just start to sort of stick my toes into that water, I, I fear I, I just have these fears. I have these fears. Well, um, what are those fears? I think some of the fears are um, are with 
you know, I, I want my kids to have a great experience, and I know I don't have control over that. Um, some of the fears have to do with the stories that you hear about all things bad and wrong and, and all yeah. the complaining that you hear. I haven't experienced really any of that, uh, certainly none of it on a large scale yet. And, of course, my kids are still uh, elementary school age, and so we really haven't gotten into the, the real meat of it yet. Um, I think we will. Maybe we maybe we won't. I don't know. I mean, I, I leave it up to my kids. And so I guess I also have a fear that uh, my parenting style, which is not helicopter-ish or lawnmower-ish, you know, you've heard of those two things. Like you've heard of helicopter parent as someone who hovers above their kid. What's the lawnmower? Lawnmower is, is even a step beyond helicopter where not only are you hovering above your kid, you are cutting the grass for your kid. Oh, yeah. So your kid, you are essentially blazing the trail for your kid to follow you. And that's... Um, Maybe a less well-known term, but I think it's something that that we use in, in student development at Hope College a little bit. So um, I don't I don't parent in that way, and I guess my fear is that parents who do parent in that way actually are doing things that uh, that that lead to positive benefits for their kids in youth sports. Mm. And I worry that I'm I'm doing my kids a disservice. I know it sounds really weird, but I don't want to I don't want my kids to be at a disadvantage because I'm not willing to be their, their helicopter or their lawnmower. And I think in the long term, I that would absolutely be the case. I would not be putting them at a dis, a disadvantage. But in terms of youth sports that you are driven be. by parents, it may right. be. So I, I that's part of the fear, I guess. Sure, and and I've been through it all, and I've had the same sort of sinking feeling all the way through that. Uh, <laughs> Um, when you see other people doing what they do to try to plow the path for their kids, um, and that's a, a financial investment, that's a time investment, that's a family commitment investment. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you make other decisions for uh, really good reasons uh, and you feel good about those decisions, it's those sinking feelings, it's that uh, fear that can creep in that that perhaps I made a, a wrong choice or, or maybe... Uh, limited the possibilities for my kid and and when uh, when I go through it I, I tell myself these things but also I try to tell counsel other parents as well you know fear is is not a great uh, motivator for anything Mm-mm. you know we really don't want to operate out of fear mm-hmm. and so and and the Bible will tell us over and over again do not fear and this seems like a kind of a silly fear but it's one of those things that sort of creeps up on us. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's good to get other people around you that can encourage you that the decisions you're making are wise decisions, yeah. decisions that uh, come from another place and may be countercultural. Uh, the, the other thing that you have to recognize is that when you make these sorts of decisions, there may be a consequence and there may be a cost, but that's the way it goes when you uh, make decisions based on certain convictions. Mm -hmm. And so I would just encourage you to um, continue to sort through each of these youth sport questions as a parent with a bigger perspective, Mm -hmm. and that will help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how about one more question in this category? I know that you've, uh, you were a student under um, Scott Kretschmar, who is a a pretty well-known sport philosopher at Penn State, but and so he may be the answer to your question, but in sport, other than a family member, who's been the biggest influence on your life and what, what lessons did this person, maybe one lesson this person taught you? Yeah, yeah, Scott Kretschmar is definitely the one. He's a saint in my book and okay. I think in many people's books. This is a guy that devoted his life to studying sport and making sport better as he did so, not just a theoretician, but a guy that put 
that put all of his philosophy into practice. He lived out what he preached, and I always appreciated that about him. A guy who, in his retirement, um, you know, has has done all kinds of great work as a professional, as an academic, um, as somebody who, who who was in a lot of leadership positions at Penn State at different points in time, um, is now a pastor in his retirement, which is a really cool thing. Wow! In my book, good um, for him. But one of the things that he always encouraged uh, of me is 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 to be comfortable in my own skin. And mm. I think that's great advice. And it's it's very simple. You know, there's nothing profound about it. But, um, you know, those uh, those of us who we often respect the most are those that seem most comfortable in their own skin. Like they're not necessarily striving for things. They are, and that's, that's great. But it doesn't feel like they're always seeking something else. You know, people who just seem to be comfortable in who, in, in who they are. And that doesn't mean complacent in any way, but it means there's just a, there's a peace, a peace there. And, and, and Scott, you know, told me that and, and he, but he lived it out too. And it was always a, a great piece of advice. Yeah. That's wise advice. And as a young scholar, you're questioning whether or not you have a place or yes, how absolutely. things might fit. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. to have somebody with his credentials mm-hmm. say, Hey, just be who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has to be very encouraging. So there's there's be who you are, and, and the other thing, and this was really helpful too, is um, to to me as a young scholar, as, as he always said, you know, just um, just be sure that every day you're you're pushing pennies, and what he meant by that is pushing pennies. Pushing pennies is is don't feel like you know, you got to change the world with every publication, right? Or you know, every day in class, you you certainly want to, and you strive to to do your best in everything you do, but realize that. Um, in order to make a name for yourself, it's not about the glitz and the glamour of, of um, you know, trying to think that one thing that you do is going to make you all of a sudden the top expert in whatever it is you're trying to be a part of. Um, but if you push pennies uh, over time, you get this pile of pennies that's worth something. Nice. And uh, But it takes time. And I always appreciated that, too. I think there's just a draw for, you know, especially with social media here, that um, anything we do, we can promote and we can you know, all of a sudden make a name for ourselves and have this fame instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And and that doesn't seem to be, you know, the most fulfilling way to go about things. And so pushing pennies was always a great metaphor. And I try to remember that too, just every day, if I can push a few pennies into the pot, eventually there'll be something that's worth, that's worth something. Well, I'm going to borrow that one as well. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, wise good. guy. That's... We'll get to spend some time with in a couple of months here. Which so. is great. Yeah. And we'll, we'll wrap up with that. So let's move okay. closer to this, um, conversation about potentially this this Congress that uh, you and I are working on. But let's break this up a little bit. I'm going to just ask you a few goat questions. All right. <laughs> okay. So you have to make a choice. I'm putting you on record. All right. One way or the other. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll just we'll say goat with, uh, with a little asterisk there that even if uh, you might think one's better than the other, which one do you prefer? Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. This will be real quick. Bill Russell or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Well, I got to go with with Bill Russell. I, yep. Do you want to give an explanation? Or it <laughs> Do you sounds, want me to? It seems like you wanted to. Well, I, I, that's just a feel. I don't know. I, I think uh, the championships in in the NBA. Yes, I mean Kareem had more championships in um, in college, one more than Bill Russell, which is pretty amazing that they both had multiple championships there. Oh yeah, but, absolutely. Um, you know, the fact that Bill Russell revolutionized things from a defensive standpoint was always always a big thing for me. I'll let you uh, give an, uh, an explanation for this next one as well, but then we're just going to pick up the speed a little okay. bit, all right? all right? So how about Messi or Ronaldo? Jeez. Oh, I'm more drawn to Ronaldo, but 
man, Messi is pretty special too. <laughs> I <laughs> that doesn't seem like you're going on record. No, it's I don't know. I think there's something about Ronaldo sort of being like this absolute uh, perfect creation, this perfect specimen in so many ways. Uh, I'm talking physically and the things that he can yeah, do. That just the power. Yeah, you're yeah. you're drawn to him because of the things he can do that no one else can do, and because of the way that he he looks in doing it. And there's just you know there's something to be drawn to. You know, there's something that he does. He doesn't do anything. He just he is sort of this this classical Greek god, you know, of a of an athlete. And yet Messi has just you know artistry. Oh my gosh, there's some artistry there too, and he's got unbelievable skills that nobody else has. Mm. And yet he's not this physical specimen that that no. Ronaldo is. And no, we can relate to Messi that. a bit more. Yeah, we shouldn't be able to because he can do things we no, can't even imagine right, exactly. doing. But somehow we think we can. Re- we can relate. It's like we think we can relate to Steph Curry. Right? <laughs> yes, because he's not like he's, a, he's not a physical. He's not female. a giraffe out on right. the court, but he, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's uh, let's pick up the pace Quicker, a little okay. bit here. All right, so Evert or Nevertilova. Never Tolova. All right. Never Tolova or Serena? Serena. Oh, I'm going to stretch you here. Simone Biles or Shannon Miller? Um, uh, this is just an age thing. Shannon Miller. Oh, wow. I know. That was, that was my, my, uh, my prime of gymnastics watching. Peanuts or popcorn? Peanuts. Jay Billis or Dan Dockich? Jay Billis. Come on, Dan's pretty good. I, yeah, I, yes, you could say Dan Dockich or any number of people, and I'd probably choose the other person. <laughs> I feel like that's an, that's a, something built into his personality, maybe. I, I think maybe. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Natural grass or artificial turf? Natural grass. Uh, peanuts, or sorry, we did that one. Hot dog or pizza? Pizza. Excellent. <laughs> I think we know Chad just a little bit more. Chad, you talked a little bit about. Let's wrap up um, this conversation because it's starting to get a little on the silly side. Um, <laughs> so you talked a little bit about your mentor, Scott Kretschmar, mm-hmm. who will be speaking at the Congress. Other than him, can you just give me one or two people on the keynote list that you're excited to hear? Absolutely. I am so excited to hear from Loretta Claiborne, mm. who is a Special Olympian and a, a Board of Trustees member on the Special Olympics, one of their most famous international advocates. I am so excited to hear from her as a a practitioner, but as somebody who has such great experiences and has done so many things, you know, she was, um, although she's, you know, her, her role in Special Olympics is based on the fact that she's a Special Olympian and an ambassador. Right. But she has been a part of sport and faith initiatives. In fact, the first sport and faith initiative, the first sort of council at the Vatican, she was a part of that. I didn't know that. Yes, and um, so she's got she's got some real chops in this area. Very I, good. I can't wait to hear from her. I can't wait to hear from Miroslav Volf. And mm-hmm. when I talk to my friends who are theologians or in the world of, of ministry, um, he's a big name, and uh, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. I think he will push us in ways that, that we don't even know of right now. Yeah, and I, I agree. Those are, those are going to be fantastic. Miroslav Volf will... Um, when he engages uh, any particular topic, he has just this unique way of bringing real theological depth mm-hmm. to a contemporary mm-hmm. conversation, and Absolutely. and it's uh, it's, it's going to be exciting when he turns his attention to sport. Yes, for this Congress, if you could get if you could get people to walk away with just one 
thing, one thought, one feeling, one uh, new way of doing things from this Congress. How how could you describe that? Well, I think just the fact that people would be leaving with one thing or one thought about sport and Christianity would be would be a success. I think that's that's the main the main driver of what we're doing here is that I at least I am, am hoping that people will leave saying, "Huh, these are really interesting conversations and helpful conversations." So in some sense having thoughts is yes, a success. But what's one thought in particular? You know, I think that that when we if people can leave saying, if I really dig in to my faith and try to transfer that to my interest in sport, it can be compatible. It, it can be done, but it's, it might require me to take a stand on some things that I haven't in the past. Mm. And so I think we're hoping for some, some change in that sense, but also, but I think it's change that comes from uh, from digging deep. That's the title of this podcast because that seems to be uh, our interest, that we would dig deep into the, the relationship between sport and, and faith. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chad, for uh, uh, being in the hot seat today. Gosh, I, I know I fired hot. some questions at you. Yes. You handled them uh, very well. Of course, we're uh, referring to the Second Global Congress on Sport and Christianity, which is set for October 23 through 27 this year. And we're excited for this Congress. We're getting uh, a lot closer to it, and we'll continue to give you information on it as you, as we proceed. Uh, this has been, uh, I think, the 21st episode. We're over 20 now episodes of uh, Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life, and we'll just continue to do this. I'm enjoying it very much. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah.